Hello, and welcome to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Margaret Parker. Today, I will be speaking with Mary Hartman, MD, MPH, Assistant Professor of Pediatrics at Washington University School of Medicine in St. Louis. She is also a PICU physician at St. Louis Children's Hospital. Dr. Hartman is with us today to discuss her article, Trends in the Epidemiology of Pediatric Severe Sepsis, published in the September 2013 Pediatric Critical Care Medicine. Thank you for being here today, Dr. Hartman. It's my privilege. Mary, sepsis has been receiving increasing attention over the past uh, 10 years or so, largely probably due to the surviving sepsis campaign, but a number of other um, occurrences have increased public awareness and um, professional attention to sepsis. But uh, like many other things, the literature on pediatric sepsis has lagged behind that of the adults. Um, We have one report of epidemiology of severe sepsis in children, which is over 10 years old, um, done by your group. So would you please tell us about your current study? Sure. The, the, The data for pediatric critical care sepsis are certainly lacking, as you describe, and and we have been very interested in a long time, uh, for a long time, to update our prior data because we assume that due to changes in practice over time that the numbers would be shifting. The, The challenge has always been to try to find the right way to address the issue, and there are certainly a a wide variety of approaches to looking at sepsis, most of which are small, single-center-based, and and really focus on therapeutic strategies, you know, specific regimens and or outcome. And and we have long taken a different approach, looking at things more from an epidemiologic uh, background. This study took advantage of some more recent data available through HCUP. I'm not sure if you're familiar. It's the Healthcare Cost and Utilization Project that that allows administrative data, which is to say hospital billing data, to be accumulated and organized by state and then made publicly available to health services researchers such as myself so that we can study larger trends across the U.S. for certain disease processes. In in particular, this is useful for pediatrics where the number of cases in any particular center or even state, for example, are not overwhelmingly large. Um, So we took advantage of having had collected data from both 2000 and 2005 for some other projects and thought it was long overdue to uh, relook at the sepsis numbers. Uh, And so that's what we've done here. So how did you do this study? So this study took um, essentially the same exact approach from our original paper. Uh, we thought to, to make things most consistent, to make sure that we could take advantage of um, true uh, data and not changes in coding practice or other types of data collection practice over time, we decided to look at the same seven states that we had looked at in '95 using the same definition of sepsis that we had used in 1995 to look at trends for pediatric sepsis that encompassed the entire range of age uh, groups for children. So that included premature infants in neonatal care units to children all the way up through age 18 that would be cared for in pediatric intensive care units and looked at how the case mix and outcomes were changing over time. So what were the major findings that you report? I think, in general, we feel that there are probably three major findings of our report. 
The first is that the incidence of severe sepsis in U.S. children rose significantly over this this 10-year period of time. It's in large part related to a very dramatic increase in the incidence of severe sepsis in neonates, and in particular, very low birth weight babies. Um, the, The incidence of sepsis in that age group doubled, essentially, over this time period um, and remained relatively stable for a number of other age groups. Um, There was a a significant increase in teenagers as well, and um, you and I can talk about that a a little bit more later if you wish. Um, I I think the second finding was that the mortality rate associated with severe sepsis in children has fallen since 95. I think what's interesting is that uh, it has not fallen or changed much since 2000, and so the, the real trend in difference in outcome appears to have been achieved early and then has stabilized out over time. Uh, but it is now less than 9% of all children, and if that includes uh, overall uh, neonates and babies that are certainly vulnerable to all-cause mortality from many other uh, from many other conditions, I think that's a really significant result in certainly deserves uh, attention and congratulation on the part of intensivists in this country. Um, and I think lastly, I think it would, some of the cost and, and healthcare utilization issues uh, regarding severe sepsis are interesting, and those were uh, major findings for us as well, which is that although the cost for pediatric severe sepsis has increased by about 26% since 1995, this in fact has occurred at a much slower rate than healthcare expenditures in the U.S. in general and has not uh, been associated with other major changes in length of stay or, or mechanical ventilation uh, that in, in other ways, in many ways, would make the uh, hospitalizations extremely expensive. Um, and so I think we continue to feel in pediatrics in general that pediatric critical care is incredibly cost-effective. Um, the number of lives saved uh, certainly outstrip the cost, and in many ways, cost increases are, are quite modest uh, compared to other health care costs in the U.S. Why do you think the costs went up if the length of stay didn't go up? And this, this was correct, inflation corrected for $2,005, so it isn't just a, an inflation phenomenon. So if we have... Uh, children who have do not have longer lengths of stay, why did the cost of their, and they didn't have difference in mechanical ventilation and some of the other um, high-tech uh, supports associated with severity, why did the cost go up? Well, my guess is that that is related to the change in um, in case mix population associated with sepsis. You know, the overwhelming majority of severe sepsis cases now are in preterm infants in the U.S., and those, by definition, are extremely expensive <laughs> hospitalizations. And so I would imagine that much of the costs that we are reflecting here are hospitalization costs associated with prematurity in general, you know, and the long length of stay for that population, although, frankly, it, it did actually shorten during our, our time period of, of uh, study here. The, those hospitalizations are quite resource-intensive and are quite expensive. Um, and so an increasing case mix that includes very low birth weight babies I think likely accounts for a large proportion of the cost shift. What about differences in infecting organisms? Did that change over time? You know, this is actually one of the more interesting um, sort of academic and or data research findings um, for us, and I'm not sure um, exactly how to explain this to the general population, but I'll give it a shot. Um, One of the things that we found that was most interesting about looking at causative organisms for sepsis is actually in these data sets, 
the, the percentage of cases in which a site of infection in an, in an infecting organism was well documented dropped significantly over time. Um, and, and I'm not entirely sure why that happened. I, I make reference in the discussion of, of my manuscript that perhaps this is related to the surviving sepsis and, and recommendations for pediatric sepsis management. There is a growing, certainly, um, recognition during the time period of, of this study that waiting for culture-proven sepsis was likely going to result in increased fatality and that, in fact, physicians should act quickly and early when sepsis was suspected clinically, even though infection was not yet proven. It's possible that that means that there's a lot of what we call now culture-negative sepsis, where children who meet the phenotypic um, appearance of a child with sepsis are then documented as having sepsis, whether or not an organism is identified. Um, that being said, for the cases where an, an infection was identified, there, there were some interesting trends for us. Um, respiratory infections account for nearly half of all pediatric severe sepsis cases, and that stayed relatively stable over time. Bacteremia is the next most common um, uh, site of infection and with bloodstream infections, accounting for about one in five cases of severe sepsis. Um, the the most common infecting organism overall is, is staph species, and that was true in all three years, although um, that um, declined uh, proportionately a little bit over time with staph species overall, with staph aureus infections um, increasing somewhat over time. The, the next most common organism is actually fungus, and, and that probably relates to the number of older children uh, represented in the severe sepsis population that have oncologic disease. Children with cancer appear to be twice as likely to be infected with a fungal organism than any other organism, and certainly much more likely than other previously healthy children to have fungus. And there are a, a fairly large number of children in the severe sepsis cohort in general that that are um, afflicted with cancer. The, the remaining organisms, uh, sort of there's a smattering of this and that, and certainly in the vaccine era as we have it now, the, the number of invasive H flu infections certainly is much, much less than it, than it used to be. Um, and I think one of the more interesting findings is not so much changes in the types of organisms uh, that are infecting the children, but the outcomes associated with that. Um, and you and I can talk about that later if you wish, but, but the trend of rapidly diminishing mortality associated with streptococcal sepsis is really quite noticeable in this data set. And the polyvalent uh, streptococcal vaccines became available in the middle of this study population. And we are certainly quite hopeful that these data represent some evidence that uh, the introduction of this type of vaccine can be quite effective on a large population scale for severe uh, life-threatening infections. It looks from table three like meningococcus is also less common than it was uh, in the 2005 cohort. It was less common than in the 1995 cohort. Yes, that is true. It went from about 1.2% um, of all sepsis infections in 1995 to less than uh, a half a percent in 2005, so which represents a substantive drop. And it was still a small proportion of kids overall, but it's quite a, a relative drop. Right. So our, our vaccine practices, as they've changed, have probably influenced um, at least the distribution of organisms, uh, but not the overall incidence of severe sepsis in children. 
Well, sure. I, I think if if we recognize that again, the the most vulnerable population continues to be the the infants who are mm-hmm. not yet vaccinated. We certainly recognize that that's that's a challenge. I think it would probably be interesting to look at, you know, if we separate out the neonates and just look at vaccine eligible population to look at how those organisms are changing. That would be quite interesting. I'm not sure that 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 type of project would be available would be possible with this data set given the overall. A trend towards declining documentation in in this data set, but a really interesting question. You also mentioned that the in- incidence of Staph aureus has increased. Um, what about MRSA? Are you able to look at that? That's a that has actually been a really interesting uh, question for us to, as we've been discussing in the lab, the findings about Staph aureus. The code for uh, methicillin-resistant Staph aureus was not available in 1995. Uh, to go back and look at it, we'd have to piece together some um, codes, if they were even uh, documented, for not just Staphylococcus, but also codes for resistance and or um, have to try to tie it in with other data sets that could look at uh, antimicrobial coverage, uh, you know, administered antibiotics, um, which to to date are not available. Um, the code has recently become available, and now from 2000 on, we could start to look at these trends, and I think that would be really interesting. Um, it's certainly my clinical experience as as I uh, talk with other folks in uh, meetings and so forth that uh, the relative proportion of really severe uh, resistant staph infections is, is beginning to become noticeable in our intensive care units. And um, the the portion of wound and soft tissue infections, which have been increasing significantly since 1995, um, uh, that are now MRSA and end up with children with quite long lengths of stay and a number of complications, um, certainly warrants investigation. I, I think because clinically it's it's apparent, it's an apparent trend, and and we're all interested to see more about what's going on. What about the increase in incidence in um, severe sepsis in adolescents? You, you, you know, mentioned that earlier. And, yeah. I, I, trends in adolescence um, are noticeable. They're not quite as prominent as they were in the neonates, but the rates of sepsis went up about 30% in older adolescents. And it appears in in some ways that that, again, is perhaps related to um, wound and soft tissue infections and perhaps abdominal infections, which are the most common cause of sepsis in that that population. Uh, I'm not entirely sure what that represents. Uh, overall, still, these uh, sites of infection are dwarfed by respiratory and bacteremia. And of course, in adolescence, uh, the, the underlying frequency, the rate of underlying comorbid disease, in particular cancer, certainly is much higher than it is in the younger children. And perhaps wound and soft tissue and abdominal infections represents cancer or chemotherapy-related problems with neutropenia and associated tiflitis, for example, or other uh, infections, cellulitides, and so forth. Uh, And I'm not entirely sure what that is. The um, trends in outcome for childhood cancer over this uh, time period, I'm sure, have been shifting. And and I'm not entirely sure whether the epidemiology about the types of cancers has been shifting. I'm certainly a pairing uh, between our group and someone in oncology would be an interesting project to try to to tease out more about that and to understand to what extent this represents 
complications of neutropenia, complications of chronic line placement, and or reflects a change in, in practice about bone marrow transplant or other really highly ablative therapies that are associated with prolonged periods of neutropenia. Uh, I think that would be quite interesting. And going back to the very low uh, birth weight infants who have an increasing incidence of sepsis, I mean, it's certainly obvious that those babies are uh, at risk. Um, but why they are, are they at increasing risk? Is this a function of uh, more very low birth weight babies are surviving or lower birth weight babies are surviving? Or why do you think that population has increased so much more than the other um, pediatric age groups? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. And we have tried to look at that some. It didn't end up in the manuscript. But one of our questions as we began to look at the very low birth weight population um, was, is there something new and different about the low birth weight population themselves? Or just is, is some of the trend that we are identifying just related to the higher number of, of low birth weight babies in general? We noticed that newborns have a, or a normal birth weight newborns had an extremely stable rate of sepsis at about 2.5 uh, per thousand population of, of uh, live births, and low birth weight babies similarly were both not only stable for the first uh, two assessment periods, but actually dropped over time. It's really the the rate of sepsis in very low birth weight babies that was dramatically noticeable. The weight of very low birth weight babies. So when we took the average weight for the states that had birth weight available, which was only five of our seven states, and looked at what is the average weight of the very low birth weight population in these three time periods, it was actually stable over time. So I don't think that the low birth weight babies are getting smaller. Um, we didn't spend a ton of time looking at gestational age, but it's certainly been my experience clinically since my training in the 1990s when I first entered pediatrics residency, certainly to now, that the number of, of premature babies that are not only rescued, but the, the earliest date of viability uh, has dropped dramatically uh, during this time period. And I think the overall proportion of babies with sepsis in our data set likely represents just really the overwhelming success of neonatology programs in the U.S. Uh, throughout this study period, that the number of very low, low birth weight babies that would have died very early on in their ICU course, not having lived long enough to acquire sepsis or survive sepsis, I think now represents a, a growing population of children that have three, four, five, six months stays in neonatal intensive care units with associated sepsis, which is not necessarily iatrogenic in nature, but associated with the just incredible vulnerability of these babies, and that there's nothing new or different about the babies themselves over this time period, except they are now considered viable infants, where in the uh, early 90s, that was probably not the case. Um, interesting points. Going back to the... the um, Overall incidence and mortality, um, do you think that with um, the emphasis on recognition and um, the increase in culture negative sepsis, some of your findings might reflect uh, recognition of children with milder sepsis or earlier stages of severe sepsis? Um, and that might be why, A, there are more of them, and B, the mortality is lower? 
Yeah, that's a really important question, and we were concerned that that might be true as well, that we were either catching children that didn't actually have sepsis or had a milder form with isolated respiratory disease and and an infection, for example, that um, were being called severe sepsis, and that was not actually the case. It's difficult to know exactly how to to get around that and and to do a test of your definition to, to find out whether this is a possibility or not. Um, we have tried to use codes for infection and severe infection that have not changed over time, and then have tried to get at it from a different angle. For example, looking at the number of children in the cohort that have multiple organ system failure or mechanical ventilation requirements to see if those change over time, right? If, if the idea is that you're identifying healthier children earlier on in the course that perhaps don't really have severe sepsis, then the number of them with multiple organ failure, the proportion with multiple organ failure should drop noticeably over time. That was not true for our uh, data set. In fact, the, the number of children with multiple organ failure overall is relatively low, but it was stable uh, throughout our, um, our, our study period. Um, and we also tried to look at what we considered to be high-risk conditions. So, um, for example, the, the conditions that are associated with the highest mortality or the types of organ failure that are associated with highest risk. So, for example, not just respiratory failure that can be easily managed with mechanical ventilatory support, but cardiovascular failure and or renal failure. And uh, those also appeared to be uh, quite stable over time. Um, so it is certainly our belief uh, that our case mix in all three years truly does represent a patient population with severe sepsis, um, and that uh, it is certainly our hope that the drop in mortality is really associated with clinical performance and rescue as opposed to a, an artificial change in, in the population. Um, extrapolating the numbers from the seven states that you included in your study, what does that mean for the national um, number of children with sepsis and the financial impact and so forth? Well, these numbers uh, translate to national estimates of about 75,000 pediatric hospitalizations annually in the U.S. for severe sepsis. Of those 75,000, it's it's our estimate that about 40,000 of those are in newborns. And the somewhat staggering costs associated with those hospitalizations is nearly $5 billion. We, were, we estimated it would be about $4.8 billion in 2005 dollars. Um, and that actually represents a near dumbling um, of the national number of cases and costs for severe sepsis uh, since 1995. Um, with the most recent mortality rates of 8.9%, uh, that means that there's about 7,000 children that die in the U.S. every year from severe sepsis. And to give some perspective on that, uh, the number of children that die every year from, from cancer is probably between 2,500 and 3,000. So sepsis certainly marks uh, along the, among the bigger um, risk conditions for children and certainly the higher fatality conditions um, associated uh, with a childhood illness. The, the deaths, however, are um, less than they would have been if the mortality rates had remained stable from 1995, and it's certainly our hope that this trend will, will continue. Uh, the costs overall, while it's $4.8 billion, uh, on average, you know, for a single child, the, the hospitalization costs are somewhere around $64,000 a, a 
per admission, which is quite expensive. We certainly appreciate, and that's a media, uh, mean cost. The median costs are probably closer down to you know thirty four, thirty five thousand dollars, which is still markedly expensive. But remember that these are hospitalizations that are roughly two weeks long, most of which involve a week or two of uh, pediatric critical care. And for the infants whose length of stay is much more approximating a month or two, um, these are uh, hospitalizations that are um, quite uh, resource intensive and on average a $35,000 hospital stay is is probably not... um, that unremarkable uh, in this day and age. I think those are really uh, interesting and important points, and um, I I think that those numbers um, emphasize why it is so important to continue the emphasis on pediatric sepsis, both at a um, professional investigation uh, level as well as at a, a public education level. Um, and I hope that you will continue to follow this kind of work um, in the coming years, because I think it's really important to track these over time. Um, Do you have any final comments you'd like to make? Uh, I don't think so. I certainly um, uh, would encourage everyone to read uh, the manuscript in in full detail, as this certainly just gives the highlights. Um, The epidemiology of sepsis in children, I think, is a real clinical interest to uh, everyone in in pediatric critical care medicine as we start to think about the trends of of resource use and where our bed capacity and how our daily census is uh, filled with uh, certain types of patients. The the trends of of sepsis certainly don't appear to be declining any uh, for most of the pediatric population. It's stable and or higher, and certainly for neonatology, it's it looks like it's going to continue to be a significant challenge uh, for folks in the future. And uh, while we wish, while we <laughs> wish that we could say put sepsis behind us, um, it doesn't look like we're quite there yet. I, I don't see that happening <laughs> in my lifetime. But I hope that we will continue to improve mortality and be more yes. successful with the management of it, um, which I think is one of the very important things in your study and in looking um, at the epidemiology over time. We have been talking with Dr. Mary Hartman, MD, MPH, from Washington University School of Medicine in St. Louis, discussing the article, Trends in the Epidemiology of Pediatric Severe Sepsis, published in Pediatric Critical Care Medicine in September 2013. This concludes another edition of the iCritical Care podcast. Please check out our website at www.sccm.org slash iCriticalCare for more information. For the iCritical Care podcast, I'm Dr. Margaret Parker. Join or renew your membership with SCCM, the only multi-professional society dedicated exclusively to the advancement of critical care. Members receive discounts on all SCCM educational programs and resources. Please ask to speak to a customer service representative or visit www.sccm.org membership for more information. Margaret Parker, MD, FCCM, serves as an associate editor for the iCritical Care Podcasts. Dr. Parker is professor of pediatrics at Stony Brook University in New York and is the director of the Pediatric Intensive Care Unit at Stony Brook University Medical Center. A former president of the Society of Critical Care Medicine, Dr. Parker is involved in quality improvement and standardization of care in the pediatric ICU, as well as resident education. Her clinical interests include severe sepsis and septic shock in children.
The iCritical Care podcast is copyrighted material and all rights are reserved. Statements of fact and opinion expressed in this podcast are those of authors and participants and do not imply an opinion on the part of the Society of Critical Care Medicine or its officers or members.